The title of this evening's talk is Metta, the Heart's Release. And beginning with some words from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and practices, are about the transforming of the heart, the transforming of the mind. And this evening we'll consider one of the crucial teachings and practices of this transformation, which is classically called a Brahma-vihara, or a divine abiding. The radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving-kindness and acceptance, unconditional friendship, the experience of connection and appreciation. All of this not being fraught with clinging or attachment, and not necessarily even a sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of the heart arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. And so, beginning with an old story, It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular and seemingly uh, very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat, a forest adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during their rains retreat and who also were quite happy to keep the monks' alms bowls full during their practice period. And so the monks moved in and began practicing vipassana, insight meditation. It's said that the unseen unseen beings, the forest devas who uh, lived there, became fearful of the monks and felt actually quite put out of their home when they saw that the monks weren't just visiting the forest for a day or two. And so these forest-dwelling beings began to create frightening sounds and sights and to emit some very distasteful odors, hoping that this would make the monks uh, leave what they considered to be their forest. And soon enough, the monks became quite terrified, which broke their samadhi, their concentration, and disrupted their mindfulness. Some even developed fever and pains and dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all felt that it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying, and related their tale, to which the Buddha responded, My beloved monks, go back to the same forest and practice your meditation there. The monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to that forest, and again saying that it was impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response was this, Dear monks, because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a true weapon of protection. 
it's said that at that point, the Buddha offered them the metta teachings in practice. Out of great, their great respect for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare uh, contradict his wishes. And so, armed with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to the forest. And for a while, continued to experience feelings of fear and anxiety. While at the same time, they very diligently and very virtuously practiced metta. Soon, there were no more fearful sights and sounds or smells. (laughs) And whereas the devas had previously been hostile towards the monks, their anger and resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and uh, welcome and even reverence began to be the devas' experience, along with a sense of being connected, like with family. And the inclination then arose to provide an environment of safety, to protect the monks from particular dangers that might be lurking in the forest so that they could practice their meditation peacefully. After recovering, strengthening, and deepening their concentration, and an open-hearted presence through practicing metta. It's said that all 500 monks at some point began practicing vipassana meditation with metta as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, they all became arahants. They all became fully enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, a heart, protected protected through the energy of metta, this quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, with a heart, a mind that's free of ill will, Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that connects. It's the energy that keeps it all together. This capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice, throughout our life. The practice and energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a natural heartfelt wish directed towards ourself, another particular person, or a group of beings, wishing ourselves and them to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be at peace. In the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, begin to pale. They're, of course, important on one level. But within this incredible radiant warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being front and center. Sometimes my experience of Metta of human kindness is like the sunshine. That warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, 
warm our whole being, and then radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does the capacity to connect, to cultivate, and to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness, where does this capacity come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness, the experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never had, if you had never experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But really, such people are very, very rare. Every one of us here has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given freely. So for example, just a very simple, ordinary experience. A week or so before I arrived here at the Forest Refuge, as I walked into the post office in Taos, New Mexico, where I live, someone opened the door for me. And I had never seen that person before. I didn't know that person at all. We looked at each other and we smiled. And I thanked her. And I felt a warm connection between us. Just that. That's unconditional kindness being offered freely, with no conditions needing to be met for it to be offered. And each of us, of course, have experienced kindness with people that we know, with people that we're close to. Kindness expressed with a more overt or stronger energy. That unconditional warmth of loving kindness. This is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us. These are the seeds that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water and fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. And we grow it. We cultivate it. And we give it out, offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's this essential and beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give is always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, or in some way their help. Unconditional kindness given freely It's a choice, a very natural choice that others make, that we make. And it has an effect on us. It has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, of all of the other immeasurable capacities uh, of the heart. It's the ground, the bed that they spring from, the other three divine abidings. Compassion, karuna, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. 
It's also the capacity of heart and mind that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and patience. With each and all of these qualities being an essential ground of the practice and the process of liberation. When I was in China in 1986, I found out that the contemporary written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol being a very simple one representing a person breathing, a a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta-love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And continuing with the metaphor of breath, Metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty, where from, where to. And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the texts, it's often spoken of as non-ill will. The absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, our body and mind, however they're manifesting moment to moment, and the absence of ill will towards others. So, no aversion in any direction, meaning no comparing ourselves in relationship to others. No comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment, no depreciation of others. The absence of ill will in all directions. Here in retreat, How often might we think of the person maybe sitting next to us or maybe the person on the other side of the room? How often might we think that uh, their practice is so much better than ours? Or maybe the comparing mind says that that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. The felt judgment that they're better than me or I'm no good or... I'm great, no sleepiness, no movement. Just look at that one over there, nodding, nodding, and nodding, restless, moving around, etc., etc. Obviously, this isn't metta. We're creating a separation. Me, other, the heart, the mind is contracted. It's uncomfortable. Mindfully recognizing and acknowledging this is part of our practice. And one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta and also to offer the other person in the equation, metta. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature. 
even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we're identified with and attached to either in a positive or in a critical way as our self, our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, skills, even our knowledge. Metta is impersonal. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings. Not only those that we're close to in our lives, those that it's easy to care about, or those that might be useful or maybe amusing or pleasing to us in some way. A heart, a mind filled with metta holds the possibility of a capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity of being able to connect and care for any being, all beings. And from uh, Krishnamurti's meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. But when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The heart, mind of metta connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are with an inner sense of well-being, patience, and acceptance. Consequently, metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As you're practicing here in the very specific ways that each of you are, essentially cultivating and developing a concentrated clarity of attention, cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness, Some of you are also working with the practice of metta in relationship to its purifying and healing aspects. And with this, you're also learning, at least to some degree, that metta practice also aids the development of our capacity for a clear, deep, and strong, concentrated attention. As our capacity for metta grows and blossoms, there's an unwinding and unbinding of the heart, of the mind, from states of fear, states of anger, states of judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through the mind, the heart, and the body begin to unwind, to weaken, to fade, and even potentially to dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the great Indian spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who taught through dialogue with his students, someone once asked him, what can make me love? 
And his response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and so important for me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which we might not agree with or connect with beings who act in ways that we might not like or might even not condone at all. Metta is acceptance on a very deep universal level, but not necessarily approving. There are no favorites. There's no favoring of one over another with metta. So it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. Reflecting for just a moment, if there was no metta in the world, this world would have flown apart, broken apart, long ago. There have been periods throughout human history, up until this very moment, when there has been more or less metta manifesting in the world more peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been, is, increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. And some words from writer Dina Metzger. There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is no time to go slowly. There is no time not to love. And of course the Buddha said it perfectly. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus that our thoughts, our words, and our actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the kama that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally, and in ways beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never know. I'd like to now spend a few moments exploring some expectations that we might think uh, the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, some very familiar felt sense. And of course our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect or to look for something that we don't know, something that we have never experienced. Or to look for something that maybe we've experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness or unconditional friendship, metta. Sometimes metta can and 
does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught. We can get stuck in expecting this. It's limiting. Metta isn't sentimental. It's not romantic at all. These are both totally conditional experiences. Metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind, that's free from ill will, free from greed, fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in this absence of greed, in the absence of aversion, it's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling we think of or are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and to others directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind that's free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, seen through, and let go of along the way of our practice. And I found for myself over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar, that demonstrates this so clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples and foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. And this story takes place just after the uh, completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. The monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and various responsibilities in other places. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anattapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down on one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati, and I wish to leave for a country journey. The Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. The Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha, keeping him to his right, and departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me and left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Buddha called another monk and said, Go, monk and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda went around to all the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come. For today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him sat down to one side and when he was seated the Buddha said one of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. And the Venerable Sariputta responded Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Rahula was the Buddha's son when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, 
and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it, and I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, is not present and may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet for all that the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him, and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. And yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused the Venerable Sariputta <coughs> falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, 
and unskillful, that you accuse Sariputta falsely, wrongfully, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense you and made amends, we pardon you. It is a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. And then the Buddha turned to Sariputta, saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. And Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon, as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding. May he, too, forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is one of the best medicines, a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this in the smallest children. I was feeding uh, one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, giving her pieces of banana. And she took uh, one of the pieces from me and put it into my mouth with a big smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me a very innocent and pure expression of the heart of kindness. A while ago I read a book that was about and by a 102-year-old black man whose name was George Dawson. And he grew up in his, on his family's farm in East Texas and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never attended school, and he never learned how to read until the age of 98, when he attended a literacy program. He learned how to read at the age of 98, and then wrote a book about himself. And it's an amazing and inspiring and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and to survive in it. So I'd like to read just a little bit of this book uh, with you. At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard. Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together about George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone and, as George says, doing just fine. And Richard says, you're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George, that's right. You figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard. What goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes, sometimes it t- might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. 
Even the poorest man can just take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you have. And if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. The cultivation, the practice of metta is metta itself. And as an example of the stability and the beauty of a heart, of a mind, steeped in kind-heartedness, I'd like to continue just a little bit more with our 102-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South, growing up in East Texas. And during the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually, the book begins when George was eight years old, as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch on the back porch with her dogs. And George speaking or writing, actually. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on the shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted, but I weren't no animal, and I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way, and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by, and she said, Didn't you see the lunch that I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. And George speaking, Thank you, I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face, but I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry, she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back here anymore. And I said, that's right, I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held onto, much of what we've grasped often very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine as me, as I am. And it's not so easy to relinquish this. 
this conditioning, these habituated patterns of our self. But that's what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. And of course, as we know, it's not so easy at times. But we also know it's very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very uh, clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta. In closing the talk, I'd like to uh, share another story with you, a story about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Big Crow. Sue Ann was born on March 15th in 1974 on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And she grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. <clears throat> Sue Ann's mother, Chick Big Crow, uh, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. And the only after-school activities that she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind, unsupervised wanderings, and later on, cruising around in cars, were out. Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow, Sue Ann's mother, was strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging to the very small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything. So Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until uh, grown, other grown-ups came. And perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and to youth groups, and she even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach, who was also a friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother uh, forbade ac uh, certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time, uh, they did them all, cross-country running and track and a volleyball cheerleading and softball and basketball. When Sue Ann was in fifth grade, she heard that somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. And so she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio, her mother and sisters getting very tired of the sound. And so for variety, she would shoot layup shots against the gutter and the drain pipes until they came loose and fell off uh, from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently, and some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voices, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, 
usually the hosts are courteous and the uh, players and the fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games their kids will be insulted and their fans will feel unwelcome. The host gym will be dense with hostility and the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and a distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was in the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes, the basketball team, went to Leed to play a basketball game. And Sue Ann, by that time, was a full member of the team. She was a freshman. She was 14 years old. And getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the Leed fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run out onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot a few baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. And after that, then the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually, the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that senior Donnie DeCorey, who was the, one of the tallest, went first. As the team uh, was waiting in the hallway leading to the locker room, the heckling got louder and louder. Some fans were waving, fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band joined in with a fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out and told her teammates, I can't handle this. And Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and some of them bumped into each other. And Coach Zamiga, who was at the end of the line, didn't know why they had stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. And then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. And she unbuttoned her warm-up jacket and took it off and draped it over her shoulder and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all of the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows, as a little girl. And the dance that she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful, modest, and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get-down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth, in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance and using her warm-up jacket as a shawl. And the crowd went completely silent. All that stuff, the lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. And in the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a loop around the court, dribbling expertly and very fast. And the audience began to then cheer and applaud. And she sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop. 
with the fans now cheering very loudly. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Leed. And I agree. It was Sue Ann's lion's roar. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. And he said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power behind his words were born out of loving-kindness and great compassion. The real results of practice sometimes come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation. Do what seems to come naturally. And then after the fact, you realize you handle the situation very differently from the way you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a clearly focused, mindful awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity are the true result. At the time you do what seems to be perfectly natural, it's no big deal, you might say, to a friend who asks how you were able to stay so present and do what needed to be done. But it is a big deal. Because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and the lives of everyone you encounter. And closing the talk this evening with a valentine that was sent to me uh, a couple of years ago. by a student and her husband. And at the top of this valentine that they made themselves, the top of this valentine, there was a bright red circular sticker with the words inside the sticker saying, this is love. And these are the words of the valentine. Take this tiny label and stick it on your dining table. Stick it on your favorite book. Stick it where you always look. Stick it on some brand new shoes. Stick it on the evening news. Stick it on a broken heart. Stick it on a hospice chart. Stick it on a violin. Stick it on your thinnest skin. Stick it on a long-lost friend. Stick it on a bill to send. Stick it on your desk or wall. Use it on a conference call. Stick it on a microphone. Feel it when you're all alone. Put it on a mirror, yes. See it when your hair's a mess. Stick it on the Senate floor. Stick it on the White House door. Stick it on the other side. Stick it where it cannot hide. Can you see love everywhere? We hope we can. We hope we dare. And let's sit quietly for just a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.